This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Lost episode 13. Unlike most people our age, we do not pine for the halcyon days of our youth. Honestly, once we discount the effects of nostalgia, a word which derives from the Greek words for pain and homecoming, we have to admit they weren't actually that halcyon. I mean, there were good moments, sure. We weren't miserable children, but the vast majority of our youth was spent imprisoned in classrooms being lectured about topics we weren't interested in and surrounded by people we didn't like. And who didn't like us. And while we had no responsibilities to speak of, beyond homework, we also had no freedom over the course of our own lives. So yeah, we'll take adulthood. That said, there is one aspect of the summer we miss, and that is summer vacation. See, as American schoolchildren, we enjoyed upwards of three months away from school every year to run around in the sun, to explore our neighborhood, and to have grand adventures like the kids in Stand By Me and Stranger Things. And it! Except mostly we spent it playing video games or in the basement playing marathon sessions of Dungeons and Dragons, which, to be fair, only involved fictional demons and imaginary killer clowns. Interestingly enough, it's an odd quirk that the American school system allows kids such extended periods of vacation. Most school systems in the industrialized world have much shorter breaks between their terms, and historians aren't entirely sure how that came to be and why. There's no general agreement. It is agreed, however, that the popular myth is that it's because the American school system was standardized so kids could help out on the farm. And it is just a myth. While it's true that the American school system, one of the first public school systems to be standardized in the Western world, while it's true that the American school system developed during a period when America was highly rural, it was more important for kids to be available during the spring, for planting, and in fall, for harvest time. Which is why, if you visit historical museums and recreations like Old Sturbridge Village in New England, you'll find out that kids in the 1830s went to school from December to March, and then took a bit of time off before returning for another term from May to August. And even in more urban locations in the 1800s, working class and immigrant families actually benefited a great deal from longer school terms because, unlike the kids and their teachers, parents had to work all year round. Much like most of us modern adults. So the origin of extended summer vacation remains something of a mystery. But we still miss it. Nowadays, we're lucky if we can find a week off to take a break from our hectic and often emergency-filled lives to relax. But we found one. And it starts in a few hours, actually. But we don't want to leave you without an episode of your favorite podcast, like we did two weeks ago when our apartment flooded due to a plumbing disaster and a series of terrible storms hit at the exact same time and knocked out our electricity for a couple of days. Which is kind of why we need the vacation. Anyway, point is, lost episode... We're gathering up some of the little bits and pieces that we had to cut from some of our previous episodes and slapping them together in 20 minutes of podcast so we can say that, yes, technically, 
we did finish writing a script before we ran off on summer vacation. And speaking of lost episodes, and speaking of things we don't know, we'd be remiss if we ignored the fact that this is our 13th lost episode. And in the Western world, the number 13 is generally considered to be extremely unlucky. To the point where many buildings, most notably hotels, in America, and in some European countries, skip the number 13 when numbering the floors on their elevator panels. And the cultural superstition that 13 is an unlucky number is so strong that there is even a psychological phobia some people suffer from called triskaidekaphobia, which causes them severe anxiety and panic attacks if they encounter the number 13 in their everyday life. The tradition of skipping the number 13 when numbering floors is actually a pretty recent one, because the development of buildings with 13 floors is also a pretty recent thing. It wasn't until 1885 when the first legit skyscraper was built. That was the 12-story tall home insurance building in Chicago, designed by William LeBaron Jenny in 1884. This was the first building in the world to include both an inner and outer steel frame that not only made it possible for such a tall building to stand, but it also made the building effectively fireproof. Well, fire resistant. And that was important because the reason Chicago was in the business of making new buildings at all was because all the old ones had burned down. Jenny went on to build more and larger buildings and became known as the father of the skyscraper. The funny thing was that for a long time, buildings didn't just emit the 13th floor. They actually emitted all the floors numbered 13 or higher. For a while after the development of the skyscraper, people avoided erecting buildings that were more than 12 stories tall. The popular myth in architectural circles was that a building taller than 12 stories would cast an unseemly shadow. Whatever the heck that means. We should also point out that other parts of the world have their own unique superstitions around particular numbers. For example, in China, the character for the number 4 looks very similar to the Chinese ideograph for death. And in some buildings in China, they skip the number 4 when numbering their floors. And sometimes, every floor that has a 4 somewhere in the number, 14, 24, and so on. Amusingly, we turned up a few anecdotes from travelers who visited buildings in China built by American companies that combine both traditions, skipping the fourth floor and then jumping from floor 12 to floor 15. Unlike the Chinese tradition though, and like the summer vacation thing, no one is really sure where our cultural triskaidekaphobia originated. There's a lot of popular theories. Some suggest it's because there were 13 attendees at the Last Supper in the Bible, and either Judas or Jesus was the last one to be seated. Hence the idea that the 13th person to sit at a table is either cursed or doomed. Others cite other biblical incidents of the number 13. Still others think proper gallows were always built with 13 steps, which is just absurd. Some cite the arrest and execution of the Knights Templar as beginning on Friday the 13th, and on and on it goes. But we digress. The point is, we're leaving on summer vacation, so you get lost episode 13.
And since we just brought up biblical references in the Knights Templar, we want to start by sharing the story of a secret society that didn't make it into our Flame Skull episode. One that was mostly unknown beyond the hallowed halls of Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, until a fairly successful at the time, but now mostly forgotten thriller film in the year 2000 brought it into popular consciousness. Let's talk about the Skull and Bone Society. While we know the Skull and Bone Society was founded in 1832 by two students at the university, William Huntington Russell and Alfonso Taft, stories as to why they formed the society conflict. One account suggests they split off from another fraternity after a dispute over election results. Another suggests the two traveled in Europe and were inspired by secret societies at German universities and decided to found their own. Still another theory is that they were founded to smuggle drugs into the U.S. and to sell at Yale. The point is, they founded a secret fraternity for senior Yale students that remains active to this day and famously includes among its members several prominent businessmen and political figures. Especially political figures. See, while they, like any good secret society, keep most of their activities secret, they do like to brag about their membership roster. Among their boasts is the fact that three different U.S. presidents have been members. William Howard Taft, George Herbert Walker Bush, and George W. Bush. And we should mention that in 1992, their membership also started to include prominent and successful women. That's when they stopped limiting their membership to men. Originally, the society was called the Eulogian Club, and then it was formally organized and incorporated as the Russell Trust Association. And apart from being called the Skull and Bones Society, they are also called Chapter 322. And those two names, the Skull and Bones Society and Chapter 322, come from their clubhouse, an old brownstone building known as The Tomb. And the name's from a plaque in the tomb showing a memento mori, a skull and crossbones, and bearing the inscription 322 BC. The 322 BC is a reference to the year that the famous Greek statesman Demosthenes died. And according to myth, at the same time, so did the Greek goddess Euloga, the goddess of eloquence and grace, whose name is derived from the same word that we derive the word eulogy from. Historically, the death of Demosthenes is recognized as a key turning point in Athenian democracy, which thereafter became a more corrupt plutocracy, a government ruled by the wealthy. According to some stories, the Bonesmen, as the members call themselves, still worship the goddess Euloga, and even steal various items to bring her as offerings. Famously, one rumor suggests they stole the skull of the famous Apache leader Geronimo to store in the tomb as an offering. The story became widespread enough that the society was sued unsuccessfully by representatives of the Apache nation to return the skull, but nothing ever came of that and no one knows if they really even have the skull or not. Speaking of the deaths of prominent Greek figures and of things that happened in 300 BC or so, we want to bring up Cleopatra, or rather Cleopatra VII. We really wanted to talk about her in our Venom episode because of how she died, but we just couldn't fit it in. Now, what's interesting about Cleopatra... The famous queen of Egypt who had romantic affairs and alliances with prominent Roman figures like Julius Caesar and Mark Antony is that she was actually neither Egyptian 
nor queen. And while she was a descendant of Ptolemy, we're not talking about that Ptolemy. We're talking about the other one. The story goes back to 322 BCE and to Alexander III, Alexander of Macedon, Alexander the Great. He was busy conquering the world at the time and had finally gotten around to bringing Egypt into his empire. Well, at the time, it was really more about picking apart the Persian Empire of Darius III. Alexander had taken out most of Darius's ports in Asia Minor, including in Syria and Palestine, and so marched himself into Egypt, which seemed like an odd move because it was in the opposite direction from the heart of the Persian Empire. But Alexander needed some strong ports along the Mediterranean, which would allow him to communicate across the sea, to move troops quickly, and also to divert trade routes away from Phoenicia to weaken Darius's economic position. And so it was that Alexander ended up in Egypt. At the time, Egypt was technically under the control of the Persian Empire, but the Persian Empire had just retreated, what with the serious classical butt-kicking they'd received in Asia Minor and the Egyptians didn't really have their own forces. So when Alexander met with the Egyptian governor Mazaces, with his army behind him and naval forces on the horizon, Mazaces handed him the keys and welcomed him to the new corner of his empire. And for a time, Alexander kept Mazaces as a loyal administrator. The thing is, the Egyptian people were actually pretty cool with this. Greeks had been touring Egypt for centuries, and there had been a lot of trade and cultural diffusion between the two nations. Alexander had a lot of respect and reverence for the engineering marvels of Egypt, like the Great Pyramids of Giza, and Alexander was welcomed as a hero and a liberator from the oppressive Persian rule. The Egyptian high priests even dubbed him a child of the gods. And this may have been the beginning of Alexander's famous egotism, his belief in his divine right to conquer. And that brings us around to Ptolemaeus Soter, aka the other Ptolemy. Ptolemy was a Macedonian nobleman turned general, and he became a close friend and confidant of Alexander the Great, and also one of his most accomplished generals. It was even rumored that General Ptolemy was an illegitimate half-brother to Alexander. Now, we should note, historians do disagree somewhat on how accomplished Ptolemy was as a general and how much of a role he played in the war with Persia. And that's because the best records we have of Alexander's conquest come from a biography of Alexander that was written by Ptolemy. But Ptolemy was with Alexander in Egypt and in India, and he even served as Alexander's personal bodyguard following a failed assassination attempt. And then Alexander died, and he'd left no heir though his wife was with child when he died. When Alexander died, he handed his signet ring over to a cavalry leader named Perdiccas. And Perdiccas and his supporters took this as a symbolic transfer of power. And they wanted to keep Alexander's empire intact. So they suggested waiting until Roxanne's child, who'd be Alexander IV, was born to name a successor. But Ptolemy and some other generals didn't like this idea. Instead, they felt that Alexander's generals should divide the empire amongst themselves. And this led to 30 years of off-again, on-again conflict, a series of succession wars. But in the end, the various generals got their own kingdoms carved out of Alexander's empire. And Ptolemy became the king of Egypt. And that brings us to Cleopatra VII. Born around 70 BCE to the Ptolemaic dynasty, 
Very little is known about her early life or ascension to power, beyond the fact that her father died of apparently natural causes in 51 BCE, and she, at age 18, was named co-regent of Egypt along with her 10-year-old brother, Ptolemy XIII, who is still not that Ptolemy. Now, we're not blaming any superstitions here, but the 13th Ptolemy was not the nicest kid. He didn't want to share power. Or at least, his advisors didn't want him to share power. So they almost immediately moved to oust Cleopatra as the regent. Cleopatra fled into exile and began raising a mercenary army to retake her throne, but the politics of Rome suddenly became very important in Egypt. See, this dude named Gaius Julius Caesar, and he is that Julius Caesar, was in a tough spot. A Roman general, he'd allied himself with two other prominent generals, Pompey the Great and Crassus, to form the first triumvirate of Rome. Basically, that's when three powerful people controlled the government. Now, the three-man team thing was an old Roman tradition. The Roman government was always appointing three-man teams to do various things. But the first triumvirate was different because the Roman Republican government was falling apart. And this three-man alliance of the most powerful generals in Rome was effectively filling in that power vacuum. It's more complicated than that, but that's another story. When Crassus died in battle, the already strained relationship between Pompey and Caesar was stretched to breaking. Neither wanted to share power either, and so Pompey and Caesar's forces ended up in a civil war, with each being supported by different factions of the crumbling Roman government. Eventually, Caesar broke Pompey's forces, and Pompey was forced into retreat and fled to Egypt. Caesar was unable to give chase as he lacked a strong naval force, so he caused trouble for Pompey's supporters in Spain. But while Caesar focused on his war with Pompey, his popularity in Rome, which was already not great, was taking a nosedive. And he was taking some serious losses. And then, while Pompey was in Egypt, he totally died. Conveniently, the guy ended up dead, and a certain king of Egypt, Ptolemy XIII, totally had nothing to do with it. He was definitely not trying to curry favor from a great Roman general who had finally arrived in Egypt because his sister was about to come knocking on his door with a mercenary army. No siree, just a convenient coincidence. But Ptolemy the Unlucky had two problems. First, Caesar wasn't actually in a helpful mood. He was having his own problems. His battle in Spain and four months of fighting Pompey's forces in Egypt had left his forces pretty worn down and his wallet empty. And back in Rome, his support had dried up. And if he was going to go back to Rome, he was going to need to rebuild his army. That was the first problem. The second problem was that Cleopatra also had an eye on Caesar's help. She smuggled herself into Alexandria and made her case for an alliance with Caesar, a case which involved the suspicious birth of a child nine months later, who was named Little Caesar. No, not that one. Caesarion. With the help of Caesar, Cleopatra was restored to the throne. Unlucky Ptolemy was driven into exile and drowned while fleeing across the Nile. But Cleopatra wasn't particularly popular in Egypt. And neither was Caesar, for that matter. So Cleopatra served as co-regent with her younger brother, Ptolemy XIV. And after he died, 
Cleopatra served as co-regent with her infant son, Caesarion. And then a series of unfortunate events hit Egypt. Floods, failing crops, economic ruin. And her power was becoming less and less secure. And also, Caesar had been assassinated by political rivals who were now fighting Caesar's successors. The second triumvirate of Mark Antony, Octavian, and Lepidus. And it gets complicated from here. But basically... Mark Antony demanded support from Egypt, Cleopatra, whose power was faltering, had none to give, and both were in dire political straits. And so, they allied with each other and invented an elaborate propaganda about how they were both gods reborn, Isis and Dionysus, and how they were acting out this big cosmic love affair that would someday get turned into a play by some British dude. Cleopatra's power was restored, Mark Antony secured his power, and things seemed like they'd all be okay. Until they weren't. Things went sour for Mark Antony due to a series of expensive wars and military losses. His loyalty was questioned by his allies in government who didn't like this whole affair with Cleopatra. Antony left his wife to move in with Cleopatra and raise funds in Egypt. And a giant propaganda war got started in which Antony's rivals claimed he had been bewitched and was entirely under the control of Cleopatra. In the end... Antony was removed from power, and Rome declared war on Egypt. The war went against Egypt quickly, and rumors circulated that a desperate Cleopatra had killed herself in despair. Mark Antony, falsely believing the rumors, killed himself. And when Cleopatra learned that Antony was dead, she went into the bedroom, locked the door, and took her own life. Which sounds a lot like a play by some British dude. But not that play. A different one. Now, the reason why we wanted to include this in our Venom episode is because while the method Cleopatra used to kill herself is actually unknown, the popular story is that she allowed herself to be bitten by an asp, one of the most dangerous snakes in the world, as you know from our Venom episode, and also a symbol of divinity and royalty in the Egyptian tradition. But like so many other things in this episode, we don't know for sure. That's just a popular story that was first circulated by Roman writers like Plutarch. So we can't claim to know whether that story is true or not, nor whether Alexander really meant to pass power to Perdiccas, nor whether the Skull and Bone Society really did steal Geronimo's skull, or whether they are just a bunch of drug dealers with a fancy clubhouse, nor why the number 13 is so feared, nor why kids in America get three months off from school every year. But we do know one thing. We're going on vacation. See you next week. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.